Nora Krug is the author of Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home, which was winner of the 2000. Now, I've seen 18 and 19. <laughs> I admit that I myself am confused about it. Um, I think uh, the, prize, the prize was given in 19, but the book came out in 18, so I'm not sure. I understand. Okay, great. Well, 2018 or 19 National Book Circles Book Critic Circle Award and named Best Book of 2018 by the New York Times. Her work has garnered medals from the Society of Illustrators and the New York Art Directors Club and was chosen for Houghton Mifflin's Best American Series and the Sundance Film Festival. Krug received the Fulbright and Guggenheim Fellowships and was named Illustrator of the Year in 2019 by the Victoria and Albert Museum. She is an Associate Professor of Illustration at the Parsons School of Design in New York City. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I mentioned just uh, prior to turning the mic on that uh, I first come across your work in Munich at the National uh, Socialist Documentation Center Museum. So I'm so happy to, uh, to bring this to, uh, into to a discussion because it's been banging around in my head for, uh, for about a year now. And one of the things that was most striking, incidentally, about On Tyranny, we're going to be talking about the illustrated graphic edition that you illustrated, was sort of running in parallel to the exhibition. Maybe you could tell me a bit about how that came about. Yes, so the exhibition was held, as you said, in Munich, in this museum dedicated to studying the history of National Socialism, and it actually is placed in a very important, historically uh, significant place, which was the main, the Nazis' main administrative building is set and still standing right next to the museum. And so right. that was obviously done on purpose in order to give it more context and avoid people from making pilgrimages to, you know, this um, this site, you know, right-wing pilgrimages. And they uh, approached me after my book Belonging came out, which is a memoir about my family history and the Second World War. And then also on Tyranny, the collaboration with Timony, uh, Timothy Snyder started. And they are obviously a very political uh, museum. And so they asked me and Timothy whether we wanted to coordinate the book launch. Uh, my publisher in Germany, C.H. Uh, Beck, is also located in Munich, whether we wanted to coordinate that book launch with an exhibition. And so we said yes, of course. And the exhibition is basically small stations, 20 stations uh, that uh, each represent one chapter in the book. And they're stationed uh, throughout or were stationed throughout the main permanent exhibition. Yeah. So it's seen a little bit as a um, kind of not intervention, but a kind of um, giving the historic permanent exhibition a, a different contemporary context. Well, and also providing uh, attendees with uh, advice on how they can actually do something to help stop this happening again. Yes, I mean, that's the whole point, I think, of Timothy's book on tyranny and probably all of his other books. And I think that's also how our collaboration started, because in a way, that's our shared goal. I mean, he's yeah. doing it as a yeah. historian. I do it more as a as an illustrator who writes about personal, individual experience. Um, but I think our shared goal is 
to um, make clear that history lives on within us and that we have a responsibility of remembering it and also making sure it doesn't repeat. And you know what was so fascinating for me? I was, uh, and, and it's funny, I say this, I was stopped in my tracks, which is a cliche, which is actually one of the lessons that uh, you bring up. And that is to think for yourself and not use these kind of cliches. But I was certainly struck by one of the lessons because it talked about the importance of small talk as a kind of a glue for, for the community and for your, your society that uh, held it together and, and, and encouraged democracy. Uh, and I was experiencing the opposite when I was in Germany. I was, I was trying to reach out to various people and I felt quite strongly that, that this wasn't happening. And so that really was, it captured an experience that I was having. Yes, I mean, uh, I tried not to laugh when you were saying that. I didn't want to destroy the recording, but it is, I think, typical. I mean, in Germany, um, small talk is basically considered yes. a swear word. Uh, it's perceived as something superficial. Yeah, it basically means, you know, why why should we talk about the weather? Or I mean, I, I know small talk can be about more than just the weather, but I think yeah. there's no appreciation for it, and I think there are probably many reasons i mean i think it was never part of our culture well it's not serious right it's not it's yeah it's sort of frivolous and a waste of time i suppose well and also you don't know how to read it germans have a hard time reading the deeper meaning when some things aren't stated out in a very direct way and i know germans aren't the only culture where that's the case I, i recently saw an interview with a dutch woman who was talking about the same phenomenon there so we very much rely on people saying what they think, which can sometimes lead to very awkward social situations. And I think there's also not always a merit in uh, always saying what you think. And it's also not always necessary to always state your opinion. But I think what is maybe not really recognized there is the importance of small talk. And I agree with Timothy Snyder that it's really something that binds us together as a community. It makes us aware that we belong to a bigger whole, that we that we need each other um, and that we we have a responsibility for each other. And that's why he writes about it, because basically what happens if a, a society shifts towards tyranny or dictatorships is that we, if we don't feel that sense of responsibility for each other, certain groups can be excluded very quickly and marginalized. And that's yep. the danger. And I think uh, it part part of what's to blame here is the German experience of I think Germans don't want to feel anymore like they belong to a bigger idea or ideology because that's what we did under the Nazis. And I think Germany is a very individualized society. It's not just because of our history, but it's also because it's a very prosperous society. And it's also because it's a society where government takes care of you in terms of um, making sure that you have access to education, free education, mm-hmm. healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I so think you're not as reliant on the other, your, your neighbor, in other words? Exactly. And I think, I mean, I, I, I'm all for that system. I, I feel like in America, we should be, be taken care of more by the government. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, it can discourage the sense of individualized responsibility to, for one another, volunteering for a cause. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the small talk comes in as well. We just don't feel anymore that we need, yeah, we need to have that sense of, of, I mean, you have your friends in Germany, but I don't think there's a, a 
as strong a sense of building a community and uh, nurturing a community as you have here in the United States. Yeah, that one little lesson in that uh, exhibition sparked all sorts of conversations that, that I've had over the past year. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've talked about is I've done a lot of traveling over the last 10 years, visiting uh, used bookstores and photographing and, and, of course, buying stuff from them uh, in the States. We traveled all over the States and, you know, they talk about this great big divide, but almost universally, we've had just such a... I was like, I'm treated like the grandson of these, uh, which is hard to believe, but of of these lovely women at diners all across the country, everywhere, it seems. You know, I've talked to Germans about this and they say, oh, that's just superficial. How deep does that go? Do they want to talk any further about anything important? You know, but still, it just, I say, it really, I think, spoke to me in a way that made me want to read the rest of the book. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, in America also, I, I don't think this society could exist, such a big country that's composed of people from all over the world that believe in different religions, that have different worldviews. You know, in most countries like that, there would be civil wars happening over and over again. And I think the only reason for why it's working is because there is, of course, it's a utopia, but there is this shared idealism of, you know, we yeah. have the same basic democratic values. And again, I know America is not always a democracy, but I think there's a belief in that idea and that shared idea. And I think without that, America couldn't exist in, I mean, we are very divided, but um, in as peaceful a way as um, as it is. And what I also liked about this lesson about small talk is that it really shows that resistance can take on so many forms, because when we think of the word resistance, we usually think about people who risk their lives. I mean, that's the ultimate idea of sacrifice is if you sacrifice your own life for the greater good of your community or society. And that's an extremely, I mean, it's probably the bravest thing anybody can do. But this is not all that resistance is about. And it shouldn't end. I mean, it shouldn't begin there. I think there are so many other ways in which we can resist. And if we feel like we are not brave enough to resist in in that way, there are many other ways we can resist in, in, in everyday situations. And I think we often neglect those things and they they actually make change. And, you know, when we think about the Nazi regime as well, people often here in the United States, in order to make me feel better, they often say, oh, I don't know what I would have done because you know, I would have probably not risked my life or the, the life of my family. But then we forget that there were things you could do such as share food stamps with your Jewish neighbors or warn your Jewish neighbors if you'd heard yeah. about things happening that would have not gotten you in trouble. And still many Germans decided not to do those things. And yeah. that's what I find so disturbing. And I yeah. think that's why it's so important to realize that we can do smaller things um, that help foster a sense of democracy and togetherness and support, a mutual support. And that's what I like about Timothy's book is that both kinds of resistance are um, are highlighted. And this is this is a special one because it seems so insignificant, but it's actually very important. Yes. Well, speaking of the book itself, uh, so I so I, again, I was prompted because of this experience with one of the lessons in that profoundly uh, moving and disturbing museum. It, uh, it, it, it's just a fascinating place. 
so I went a- I went after the book, and of course I found it, and it looked it reminded me of the Chairman Mao's little book, you know, in the sense that it's the same format fits in your pocket and uh, allows you to cart it around with you, and and but that's that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your interpretation of this text, and one of the first observations that I had was uh, of the lines on the side of On Tyranny, the small book. And you've replicated those lines with crayon. In crayon, there's about five red lines on both sides of the covers. And it reminded me it's kind of a column. This is a sturdy... uh, (laughs) Well, perhaps you could tell me what you were trying to capture by, by replicating that. Well, I mean, just talking about the initial non-illustrated edition again, I think it's beautifully formatted and designed. Um, yes. And I agree it has this, I mean, of course, it's, uh, yeah, it has this, uh, re- it resonates with other books of rules, basically. I mean, I don't want to use the word ideology because that sounds dogmatic, but it is, right. you know, ideas that uh, that a democracy should believe in. And so it has this sort of official look to it, a pragmatic look to it, too but in a very elegant way. And the shape is also quite vertical and it's made to look even more vertical as we know stripes uh, going that way <laughs> make things look thinner. So yes, yes. <laughs> they make the, the book look even more thin and as you say, column-like. Um, and then for my, for my illustrated cover and the book is obviously bigger in the illustrated edition because less text is on each page. But uh, that was a pure marketing decision. Um, initially, I did not have these lines in my design, but then yes. the marketing team, and I think it makes complete sense, suggested that we take some of the elements of the original cover so that the reader or the buyer uh, makes a connection between the initial yes. non-illustrated edition and this new one. But yes. in the foreign edition, I have happened to have the Dutch one here. We eliminated those lines because their original covers looked completely different from the American cover so we didn't need those but I think they they add a nice sense of severity um I mean I think and as I say I I'm put in mind of a column is did yeah. you get did you get any sense of that I didn't uh specifically think of that but you know these things probably always resonate in some way in one's head yes um, I mean for me it's more like a severity but in a way that um you can hold on to you know something you can that that can pro- provide guidance and i i suppose that's maybe what goes through uh, or went through architects minds with the columns too it, it it has a certain presence it says you know it it has a certain officialness a certain you know let's take this seriously this is something we need to to look at or, or think about or hold on to yeah now it's, it seems to me it's obvious that you you're relying on the uh, or being informed by sort of the evolution or the history of book illustration in in, in the, some of the things that you're doing. But let's stick right now with the uh, the cover. I, but what I want to get from our conversation, incidentally, is what you do, how you do it, and how come you're so good at it. So <laughs> I don't think I can answer the last two questions. But, uh... <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's just look at this cover because I think it's quite stunning. Uh, and at the t- at the very top, uh, you've got you've got on tyranny written looks like finger 
finger painting in blood. That what we wanted to get at? Um, yes, I mean, blood was, you know, I, I, I tried not to make it look too gory because I think that's boring. And um, so I did, the, I had different variations. I had the type also in green and blue and tried out whether that worked. But then in addition to the blood association, red also is just a very alarming color. So yes. for me, uh, uh, yes, it, it could look like blood, but it's also just what was more important to me was that it look alarming. Also, you know, there are maybe associations with the Nazis swastika emblem because the main colors I'm using are black, red and white, but in a very uncomfortable, unpleasant, off-putting way. I mean, from a marketing perspective, yes, strange to use these questions, but uh, these these descriptions. But of course, um, I didn't want to um, refer to that emblem in a uh, you know in a positive sense, obviously. But but in a in a sense of okay, this is a warning. This is a this book is like an antidote to what happened before under the Nazi regime. So I I, I drew it, I painted it with a brush, so it's not finger painted, and I worked with uh, you know ten speed press, uh, which is you know they were all wonderful. My editor and the art director. And the publisher were extremely supportive in everything I did and, and, and Timothy as well. So I really had free reign. And, you know, the cover is always the place where you have more scrutiny from a publisher, understandably, because it is what sells the book. And I want the book to sell. Obviously, I want the book to be read. So um, I listened to that advice and they're professionals. But again, I, I just this was the first cover I suggested and they immediately supported it um and so i took one of the images from the book which is a hand folded origami skull uh, that is from a chapter in the book that talks about how easily we can slip from being a soldier into becoming or a mercenary into becoming a killing machine that basically observe somebody else's orders without deeply reflecting on them and so what I did in that chapter was I uh, painted the face of a soldier or a paramilitary it's not really defined which one it is man and um, step by step I fold with each new page I fold this head uh, into the shape of a skull and what I wanted to uh, symbolize by doing that was this slow creeping transformation that we're often not aware of but that we're often part of and are often not questioning and I wanted to bring in uh, I thought that by bringing in this origami effect uh, this very physical uh, quality of the act of folding this could evoke a very visceral response in the reader because we've all at least tried I'm not very good at origami but you know tried these kind of paper games so there's a certain playfulness in it but a playfulness that becomes really gloomy when you arrive at the last page that shows the skull and then I added a drawn body to the skull and looking at this image on that page I realized this is to me in a way one of the many faces of tyranny this could be a personification of the word tyranny and then I thought okay let's pull that out for the cover and then how can I integrate the title into that and so I lifted up the skull from yes. the body. In terms of that, it's a bag, basically. It's an empty, empty, it's hollow, it's empty. It's kind of stupid. That's what I see. And then I see the way that you've torn the, the paper away from the eye to make the holes. It almost looks like tears. 
And then you've got this mouth. It's like a grill, grill of teeth, like the skull. It just, it just says, I don't know why it says tyrant to me, but it's, it does. It's just like a, a kind of an airhead, but scary as hell. Yeah. And often, I mean, without naming names, but you know, there, there have been airheads in recent history that are nonetheless very dangerous uh, in American recent history. So we have to take this seriously and we often don't, and we find yes. it funny yeah. and laughable and we become very passive and bit by bit we're sliding into tyranny and and then for the cover i i moved up the skull from the body and uh pushed the word tyranny in between um the skull and the body and i had all kinds of associations of course there's this idea of beheading but there's also all the statues that you see you know after a leader is brought down like saddam hussein at the time there were all these photographs of his statue being taken down or beheaded and suddenly you know, and, and, and this book is about how can we deconstruct tyrants or t- t- tyrannic ideas. And so I played a little bit about uh, with that idea uh, by placing the word in between the head and the body. Seeing this bag head floating in the air, it just had such an impact. Uh, you, can you explain any of that? I, I no. just played around with the elements yeah. in Photoshop. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is what often happens. We have a lot of associations, visual associations stuck in our head that we get from popular culture, from the history of visual traditions. And I I don't necessarily think of them as I design these things, but then I'm sure they flow into it in some ways. I mean, looking at it just now, I also suddenly thought of the old uh, Japanese ghost woodblock prints that often have these elongated necks uh, with the floating heads. And it has something ghost-like too, something that you can't quite grasp that threatens you, but you can't catch it because it's, you know, uh, it's volatile and it's um, all of that. And now I'm thinking of the skeletons that you see uh, often with old printing presses, you know, you've, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, very effective. And then underneath it, you've got this kind of black, dirty thick pencil kind of bodybuilder body <laughs> with with the 20 lessons from the 20th century right on its its chest yes uh, again i had all kinds of associations i wanted obviously to convey this idea of aggression and that's why i had this body belt you know i i was thinking a lot about the ss and you know certain types of body types that were um, favored or, uh, you know, that uh, were attracted to certain divisions of the SS and the SA at the time in Nazi Germany. And um, so I drew from that also the color black, which was used in some of the Nazi SS uniforms. And there's also certain blotchiness about the way that, you know, smudges uh, from the drawing that I- Kind of smoke or dust coming off it, charcoal. Those are interesting associations, too. I mean, smoke and war, you know, belongs together. But I was also throughout the whole book thinking a lot about the traces that history leaves, the traces that we leave by the actions that we take or decide not to take. And so I it was very important for me to keep some of that physicality uh, to indicate this idea of, you know, this is our these are our fingerprints that are going to be staying on forever. I mean, the same with what's happening with Ukraine and in Russia, you know, whatever Russians decide to do or not to do at the moment will leave fingerprints for centuries to come. 
and we will have to confront those or they will have to confront those. Um, you mean sort of moral questions? Is that what you mean? Yes, uh, moral and um, yeah, I mean, all kinds of traces. I mean, when you take uh, Berlin as an example, there are the physical traces, you know, you can still see bullet holes in some of the old buildings from the Second World War. Yeah. Um, but also the emotional traces are extremely deep amongst Germans, the, 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 the guilt and the, the e never ending question of how do we face this? How do we continue to face this? Make yeah. sure it never happens again. And it's our responsibility and we have to face up to it. And I think leaving these smudges in a way is a way of saying we have to face up to the traces that we leave by, you know, the, the actions we take or don't take today. There's also, of course, the you know association with the strong man, but then you have these big hands, like these big dumb hands, almost like they're a, uh, they've got a, a barbell in them, but there's no barbell, and the thumbs are kind of you know stuck uh, behind the fingers, and that tells me that there's some kind of anxiety. This this uh, this is what how I saw it. There's also two little lines, one off each hand. And I, I just couldn't, uh, I'm so happy to be able to ask you about those two little, odd little lines that are sticking off these hands. Why is that? I, I didn't want them to look too neat, I think. So I wanted, again, kind of the mistakes or the accidentalness. I wanted to retain that. Uh, yeah. I didn't want it to be too clean. I also drew them very quickly and by pushing the pencil down quite hard. I mean, I tried to feel that feeling of aggression. And what your your interpretation of fear is interesting because all I was thinking about was aggressiveness. But then again, of course, the two are connected. I mean, I think what's happening in the world these days is a reaction to fear, um, you know, irrational fear too. Um, and that often turns into aggression if you have no other ways of confronting or analyzing or engaging with your own fears um you know then you just turn it into anger and uh but it's yeah. true an element of fear in there as well fear and anxiety and tension yeah yeah just to finish off the body two dorky looking tiny <laughs> little feet and again it's like okay it's a strong man but it's actually a little man it's you know this is the kind of instance where I just do things and then I uh, it's interesting to me to to then think about it in retrospect and I I wasn't thinking about why the small feet I mean again the boots you know and and the way the pants are stuck into them yeah it's kind uh, of a buffoonish a little it's also very much like the Nazi uniforms um, but it's uh, and you know the sound of those boots I mean we all have associations with that political associations. But uh, I, I guess the main focus was supposed to be the, the hands and the chest where the real power is. I mean, you know. But as I say, I just love those little feet because, again, they tell me that this is a this is a little person here. This is not an important big. This is a, a little person pretending to be a tough guy. And then and then they're both facing in the same direction, which, again, to the side, it just it just looks so dorky uh, connected with that big body i i love it i mean i also have a very strong fondness of two-dimensional flat work artwork 
I mean, that's yeah. what I love about the Japanese woodblock prints. And that's what I love about medieval history, um, you know, medieval art and Renaissance art, this kind of flatness. And um, why do you love that? I don't know. I, I was just thinking about that. I wonder if it's because it seems to focus on something. It seems to shift the focus on the essential message in a way. It makes it more not educational, but it makes it more. Um, it, the, 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 it has a more direct. I think it has a more direct. You know, because it it's so stripped down. You know, yet yeah. there's no worry about getting the light and the shadow right and the three dimensionality and the perspective. It's just about the figures and the expression of the figures and their relationship to their immediate uh, surrounding and to each other. But it doesn't worry about getting things right from a technical point of view. I'm right. also very much influenced by German expressionism. So yeah. I think it's this immediacy that this uh, evokes in a way that I think hits a more, it can hit a more emotional core. Kind and of what, more raw or visceral, you mean? Yes, uh, I think there's a directness. I mean, also with religious imagery from, you know, from the Middle Ages, I think the telling of the story of, of Jesus and the never ending retelling of it in churches and um you know the the basically certain element of indoctrination also yeah. that helps us understand his life and his stories and why they should have meaning for us I, I do think that the flatness somehow can support that and bring it home in a different way but that's it's just my personal pr preference okay yeah that brings up this this sort of shamanic uh repetition that that you re reference in the book at, at various points you know there's Taylor Clinton for example there's this repetition of her image and and this is what we should be aware of is that this is what tyrants do they'll keep repeating the same uh, damn slogan over and over again to, to as you say to try and indoctrinate their listeners and yeah. audience yeah there's uh, just moving along to uh uh, well, the smudging that we've talked about, that, that smudging is throughout the, the book. Uh, there's all sorts of smudges, which is interesting. Yes. Um, again, I think I wanted the whole book to have a, a... I mean, one idea was the one that I talked about earlier with the origami, is that um, I wanted the reader to have a sense of um, interactivity, you know, that uh, they... That I think the physicality of the smudges and some of the playfulness could draw the reader in because it makes the book almost like an activity book. Yes. And I wanted to convey that idea because I think what Timothy Snyder talks about is the danger that we, I mean, on the one hand, the danger that we participate often without even knowing that we are in the shift from democracy to dictatorship. But we can also actively participate in the fight against tyranny. And so the participatory aspect is what I wanted to bring in by making the book look a little bit like an activity book. And also some of the, the conceptual ideas. I mean, there's one drawing, um, uh, an upside down drawing, yes. where uh, he talks about the transformation, or he's quoting Ionesco, about the transformation of... Um, a university professor into a believer in Nazi ideology yeah. and made a drawing of a face that can be looked at from two different perspectives. So 
when you hold the book in its usual position, it looks like university professor. And then when you turn it upside down and the last paragraph on that page is printed upside down so that you have to turn it upside down to read it, suddenly the face looks like that of a Nazi. Um, and, and so again, I, I, I wanted to force the reader to participate because, um, you know, in, in a way the book is a wake up call. Um, and it, it asks for the reader's participation. So that's that's yeah. why I wanted to bring the playfulness in it. And then a third aspect is um, I also, in, in all of my work, um, I really like this sense of visual diary and collage. Yeah. And that's for a variety of reasons. One is that to me, uh, you know, the idea, thinking about the idea of memory and history uh, is a very fragmentary thing. I mean, we read about it in history books, but we often forget that, history didn't happen as events, uh, but as no. individually experienced moments, decisions, feelings, smells, uh, you know, it, it was something that was individually experienced and suffered and collectively too. And, and then we write it down and then it becomes, you know, history. But history is now. I mean, history is every second of every day. And um, I, I'm trying to convey that by showing the fragmentary nature that we then assign a certain logic to. So it's not chaos I'm showing in the book. It's, uh, you know, looking at one subject from different perspectives and having a sort of kaleidoscopic collage-like visual quality to convey that. Different uh, mediums, too. Different, in fact, yeah. I, love, I love how... I mean, I think it's uh, it was uh, Walter Benjamin that talked about the confetti of the confetti of history being ephemera, and uh, that I love the fact that you've it, it evidently snooped around. Uh, this is a big part of my life: snooping around uh, flea markets and antique stores and such. Uh, to, uh, I, I suppose what just getting a getting a a bank of stuff that you might be able to use in your later creative moments, or what. Or were you like specifically that. were you specifically looking for stuff relating to this book? I like that you uh, use the term snooping around because that's what I always call what I'm doing because calling it detective work would be pretentious and it's not quite yeah. research because that sound that can sound academic. I know it's not always academic, but yeah. uh, it's really looking yeah confetti, you know, looking for the human traces of war and the ways right. in which it physically resonates and materializes. I mean, material culture is now a bigger discussion in academic con context as well. But for me, it's actually, I'm trying to emotionally engage with these uh, photographs and artifacts that I find at flea markets all over Europe, but mostly in Germany and mostly in Berlin. Yeah. And most of what I used in On Tyranny was actually from the collection I put together during my research on my other book, Belonging. And there I specifically was looking for photographs and objects uh, that were owned by individuals under the Nazi regime. Yeah. So not propagandistic material. I mean, no. it, photo albums and scrapbooks. And also objects. I mean, one object I found is a, an old tin metal box uh, that some a German prisoner of war made out of the scrap metal of a crashed airplane as his own tobacco box while he was um, imprisoned and he um, decorated it with you know I, I think a nail and a hammer on the front on the lid with right. a scene that looks kind of like a romanticized scene of the place where maybe he came from and just to think about the fact that somebody some German soldier carried this box in their pocket 
and now I'm holding it. I mean, it's at once a very uncomfortable experience, but it because it provides almost a direct link to somebody who might or might not have, I mean, you don't really know, believed in Nazi ideology. And now you are holding this object. And what does it mean to own these things? What responsibility do I have as the new owner, uh, you know, to preserve this very personal history? And I, I do think we have a responsibility. I mean, one of the reasons for why I go to these flea markets is also to take, to preserve these things that could otherwise fall into the hands of, you know, dubious people. I mean, I, at one time I went to a Turkish flea market in the Wedding area of, um, of Berlin. And I found, and it's really a market that is, is kind of, you know, they have broken household goods, old lampshades. It's not, not a place one really can recommend to the, uh, to the normal tourist. But um, sounds exactly market, like what I'd be interested in. Yes, because when you you, you just find things in between those, uh, you know, and and they're often overlooked. And um, there was this one little book that was lying on the table and it had the word Erinnerungen, which means memories on the spine. And I picked it up and opened it up and it pretty quickly became clear that this was um, an album of a soldier from the Second World War, um, which is not completely uncommon. But what was uncommon was that it featured six photographs of an atrocity that was committed mm -hmm. by the Nazis right at the beginning of the war when they inv invaded Poland. And I didn't know what the atrocity was when I looked at these photographs. There was no labeling. Um, and I took it to various archives, both in Germany, and I took it to Der Spiegel, and I took it to the New York Times. And finally, I found out um, what this was. And it was a an act of revenge on the part of the Nazis for uh, the partisans were in an effort of trying to keep the Nazis back when they invaded um, were um, engaged in uh, killing some of the so-called ethnic German community in uh, in Poland, some right. of which was supported of the uh, you know supportive of the Nazis' invasion, and um, for doing that they retaliated and killed partisans and Catholic priests and and mm. these six photographs are evidence of that historic event, and I'm finding it at a you know Turkish flea market in the middle of vacuum cleanup parts and and it's just such a strange experience and the question is what do I now do with that I mean I showed it at the museum museum in Munich um, but what responsibility do we have to preserve these and to make sure they're not being I mean they're collectors you know right-wing collectors all over the world yes. in Who fact there's more collectors stuff. there aren't there there are more collectors on the right wing than there are on I'm the, sure I'm sure know. And yeah. that's why I try to I try to save whatever I can and probably, you know, potentially in the end, um, I mean, use it as material for my for my books, but also maybe uh, donate it to an archive at the, you know, when I'm when I'm moving on to another subject. I mean, the, the book that's right across from the yeah. title page and on tyranny is also that was from um, an antique shop in West Berlin, where I got engaged and also kind of dubious conversations with the owner of that antique shop now where I didn't quite figure out um, what his political viewpoint is and it was a photograph um, that was I found in just like a box full of loose photographs uh, it was it's not titled but it shows a scared looking man with a beard and a black cap and a gray coat and a white wristband on his right arm yeah 
speaking directly in the camera. And, you know, I've spoken to a few historians who said that it is possible, if not likely, that this is a Jewish man, uh, you know, in probably Poland. And I mean, the, the, the armband would speak to that too, like an early version of what yeah. they were asked Star. to wear. And I placed this across from the title page because I wanted to show the shadow image of tyranny. I mean, we associate with tyranny, we so often associate certain types of statues or propagandistic visual material, but I wanted to show, you know, what's the opposite face. This is, this is basically the opposite face of the one on the cover. Well, again, like so much of the book has has faces and eyes staring directly at the uh, at the reader, of course, sort of almost accusing them or at least trying to goad them into some kind of action, not just to sit here and read this, but do something. But uh, no, the, the, the look is it's it's such a an interesting look, as you say, scared, but also like, why the hell are you photographing me? You know, uh, am I going to get into even more trouble with you photographing me? It's it's just, yeah, speaks to the kind of lot of someone who is being persecuted. Yes. And also, you, I'm, I'm glad that you interpreted the recurring motif, I would call it, of people or also animals, but looking directly at the viewer. I've repeated that constantly throughout the book because I wanted this direct confrontation with the reader because that's what Timothy does in his text. He wants us to look and he wants us to see um, also, you know, seeing is also about witnessing. So, yes. uh, you know, I, I include, I mean, there's always the question of, are you allowed to show the victims? But I think it's not so much about are you but about how do you do it and yeah. i think there are many ways of doing it that's respectful and not voyeuristic and um i put this photograph of the man in on the title page on the, across from the title page because i think by looking at him we're witnessing that moment and that means that we're not forgetting the moment or him i feel yes. like we, we owe it to him to look at him and he's looking at us and, yeah he is um, directly yeah yeah. And so that's why I included a lot of photographs also with the um, in the third chapter uh, where Timothy writes about Wendell Phillips quote on. Yes, I, I can't quote it because I only have the Dutch. Uh, oh, no, that's OK. Yeah, that's the uh, the abolitionist uh, yeah. who's talking about uh, eternal uh, freedom, the price of it. I, I can't translate from the Dutch. The, yeah, the abolitionist uh, Wendell Phillips did, in fact, say that uh, eternal vigilance is the price of of liberty. And, ag yes. and again, yeah, vigilance is a good word to to describe uh what you've done in the in with the illustrations but uh but also uh, uh this is what you are encouraging the reader to do is to be vigilant and uh, and in our uh, observation of what's going on and 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 calling stuff out yeah and in this instance i mean obviously timothy snyder the, the, you know the focus of the book is not american history and the history of slavery because no. that's not his area of research no. But um, I took this quote from the abolitionist Wendell Phillips as an opportunity to call, you know, again into attention that obviously slavery and colonialism are also were also um, and continue in some ways to be acts of terrorism and tyranny. So yes, I, it's eternal, isn't it? It's it's kind of with us, and it's always with us. 
yeah, I mean, contemporary racism is a continuation of all that. And so I put a photograph from the Library of Congress that shows two formerly enslaved persons with really ragged clothes um, looking directly, again, directly at the camera and confronting us and confronting our, you know, lack, often lack of action uh, when it comes to con facing up to uh, both our co colonial and, and history of slavery, but also contemporary um, fight against racism. Yes, it is kind of almost, like, it's like an accusation of, of, of bad behavior. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting because you chose to sort of emphasize that where it was just in passing for Tim, for Timothy. But so that, and that gets to your role as an illustrator. I mean, basically yeah. you were reading the text and giving your interpretation of it. Yeah, I mean, as illustrators, you have a lot of power in that way. You do, um, for sure. You you are able to emphasize certain things that, that in the text and bring them out and focus on them. And it's funny because in one of the interviews we did together, Timothy said that, uh, well, he is an American, but he's a scholar of European history. And that's what his books are about. And I'm a German, uh, yes. uh, and I made the book more American. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. so you know, images like that, and uh, it's uh, it's funny when that happens. But it can only happen, obviously, when you work with somebody who's really generous in their trust to what you do. And I was very lucky in that. Well, I was going to say, you know, Dickens was he monitored what Fizz did very very closely because it was so you know obviously so important he wanted to make sure that he had control of the the way that people thought about his character and thought that they looked yeah yeah but, I mean I, I and I understand that but um I mean luckily this was really uh, it, this was a true collaboration uh yeah, meaning yeah. that um I think what he wanted was the illustrations to add a different dimension. Yeah. That would, instead of illustrating his text, adding, bringing it into a different realm. And I mean, that's what you get with literature that's turned into movies, too. I think the best movies obviously don't necessarily no. stick doggedly no. to the script, but they reinvent it. They think of it as a new form of telling the story. And you have to take certain liberties if you do that. And uh, that's, I think, to me, the most important role of an illustrator anyway is not to translate text into images one by one, but to, yeah, to create this other layer that we can, that we, that, that, that transports different emotions and sometimes can even contradict the text or ridicule it or, but yeah. uh, it, it, it's, an, it's an added experience rather than a visual translation of something that's already existing. Well, isn't it interesting? I mean, it's the kind of triangular relationship. It's a, there's the text, there's what you have to say about the text with the illustrations, and then there's me getting what I get out of the text and the illustrations and coming up with another conclusion. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's almost like a, a process. I mean, books are always a snapshot of a certain moment in time. Um, I mean, who knows how how I would have illustrated this book this year. You know, with all the new stuff that's happening uh, with Russia and Ukraine, and um, so it's always just a snapshot of a particular moment in time, and it's, it as you say, it can be perceived differently by different people, by the readers. Uh, it can be read very differently again in a year from now. Uh, it shifts in a way. It's not, even though it's printed on paper, in a way, the experience is not as static as we might 
think. You also talk about conveying uh, empathy. Yes, I mean, I think that's what we need in order to understand history. I think if we only think of history as facts that have no relationship to us, I think um, we're missing one of the most important parts. And I think uh, that's why it's the personal narrative is so important. And again, I, I see that as my role as a writer and as an illustrator to highlight how war affects people on an individual everyday level. I'm working on a new project at the moment that's going to come out in book form next year that is um, about the war in Ukraine, in Ukraine. And ever since the first week, I've been interviewing a Ukrainian journalist and a Russian artist uh, about their experience, everyday experience and confrontation of the war. So I, I interview them every week and then I put these very fragmentary answers I get into continuous text. And then I create an illustration for each of the two protagonists. And it's published, it's been published by the LA Times, uh, among other papers. Um, and what's currently? Yes. And, and, and then it, it'll come out in book form as a documentation of the first year of the war. But what's important for me in this project is not the facts, which are obviously extremely important to read about on a daily basis. But the, you know, what, what, what does this all do to people every day? What does it mean to leave, uh, you know, your husband behind who has to stay in Ukraine because no men between 18 and 60 are allowed to leave the country? What does it mean to return as a journalist to Ukraine from the country where you emigrated to, uh, you know, Denmark? So what's, what does it mean to go back and forth between a war zone and this country where people are you know just sitting in cafes and how do you handle that emotionally uh what does it mean to the russian guy who just last week basically fled um russia at the last minute because he's worried about being drafted like so many others um you know all these questions that are deeply human that we don't often enough hear about in the news because there's just no space and time obviously yeah, but, well, and again, um, with your illustrations, you were bringing in the most, probably the, the most important aspect of all of this, and that is how emotionally damaging it can be. Yes, yes, damaging physically and emotionally, but also, uh, you know, over over the course of generations. I mean, that's what my book Belonging was about. How does this actually, this trauma on all sides, I mean, in, for Germans, it was a self-imposed trauma. I want to just emphasize that it was something they brought on themselves uh, but it was nonetheless a trauma uh, and continues to be because how do you live with the legacy of the Nazis and uh, you know how is this communicated and transferred in, in all kinds of ways not only positive you know it's not just that that we all do uh, I mean Germans do a lot of memorializing but um, you know the, the personal confrontation regarding what happened in our own families is often not done enough and so uh, you know how do these stories and also rumors the things we want to believe about our families or about the war uh, how how does this how does this shift over the course of generations and how does it remain part of us and what's the collective versus the individual experience and, and memory and yeah so those are the kind of questions i'm interested in in general and again I, again i think that illustration can really underline that personal or can create a, a an entry point an emotional visceral entry point into the personal experience of war 
um, that I think is very important to our understanding of war and history. Yeah, you're kind of humanizing history. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. But humanizing in the good and the bad. I mean, humans also do terrible things. So very much. Yeah, I'm not leaving that out. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, moving uh, moving along then on just on in terms of how you do this. Interesting. You've got this um, uh, printing. You've got this uh, handwritten. Well, I heard you talking about this font that you've done up that's got four different kinds of S's just so you could make it look like it's handwritten. The whole book we're talking about on tyranny here, your version of it, is in this lovely handwriting, printed handwriting that makes it feel kind of intimate and uh, uh, personal, as you've said, and, and homemade. Yes, again, it, 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 as you said, it makes it more human in a way because it ends up looking a bit like a, an illustrated diary or something. It makes it yeah. more intimate. Something precious. But also um, intimate in a sense that you, you have to confront it from a personal level. You can't just confront it as a historian or it, 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 it's part of us and we all have a responsibility to confront the histories of our, our past and also of our families. I mean, how many people go to archives to research whether their family profited from slavery or owned slaves? Probably not that many, but that's also part of confronting history. Yeah, I mean, the when I did Belonging, I hand-lettered the entire American edition, which I will never do again. Yes. Um, and that came out- How are your hands anyway? Are they kind of crippled <laughs> now or- Not yet. Um, <laughs> well, I have a big- uh, like uh, I don't know, this yes. is some drawing. It's, it is a bit deformed, actually. Yeah, and and then uh, it came out in um, sixteen countries, and so I had to. I obviously I was never going to hand letter it in in Korean or whatever. You know, I no, I, no. I would have made so many mistakes, and so and 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 paying illustrators in these countries to hand letter, which sometimes cartoonists do to yeah. hand them. there's so much text in my books that um it would, would have been very expensive and so i decided to have a designer develop a font and as you said there are four variations i mean in interestingly you use the word the, the letter s as an example which is funny because when you write ss which oh, i wrote yes. probably write in all of my books just as an example and the both s's look exactly the same the reader can tell that it's uh and it becomes kind of stiff also Oh, here I actually have an example of exactly that word. Um, and oh, so yeah. uh, <laughs> so the four variations make it look more hand-lettered and less uh, blocky in a way. And I, yeah. with every foreign edition, I work with uh, designers to do, the, to do the layout. And then obviously the challenge is that in some editions, like the Dutch or the Danish, uh, the translation is so short that it completely changes the composition of the entire page. And then I have to work out with the designer, okay, how do we restructure, redesign the text so it flows nicely around the images without it looking like half of the page is blank. So every, every country and every language has its own challenges and it's, it's a lot of work. Every, every foreign edition is a lot of work, but I take full ownership of it and I tend to be a bit perfectionist about these things. 
Well, and also, again, I guess this gets to, I, I think that Snyder approached you, but what a, in a way, what a gift. Obviously, it's a hell of a lot of work, but this is, the, I can't think of a more important message to, to work on, right, this, at this time than this one. Well, it is a gift because to me, the dialogue is, I mean, to me, publishing and illustrating and writing is all about communicating. I'm mm. not somebody who draws just for the fun of it. If I'm, <laughs> well, you did when you were a little kid, didn't you? Hopefully. Probably, yeah. But now I, I only draw when I have a new book pub, uh, project, basically. Right. Or, um, so uh, there has to be the idea that this will be communicated to somebody. And uh, with this, with the, these kind of subjects, it's, yeah, to me, those are such important subjects and relevant. And to have publishers in different countries, uh, you know, work on this. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm just now finished the Thai edition of Over Tyranny, uh, on yeah. Tyranny and working on uh, actually one of my books, uh, you know, Belonging is now coming out in Russian. That's you being know, published but, outside of the country, I'm guessing. Yes. And, uh, you know, that there are certain parallels to draw and we should we should we should have learned from them. Uh, and clearly we haven't. Anyway, so it's uh, and what what's always very uh, satisfying when I'm invited to talks in different countries is that the recognition of how universal these topics are. This is not just about Nazi Germany or um, the no, Soviet no. Union. No. This is about all of us. And we all have histories that it's are human tied, nature. And we all have a universal responsibility. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and this always comes up um, from the audience. I mean, when I gave a talk in, in Canada about belonging, the, um, you know, the topic quickly came up of the First Nations people and uh, you know, in South America, it's it's other dictatorial um, regimes. And so wherever you go, you have legacies you have to deal with. And um, yeah. Well, you're you're going to uh, rival George Orwell's uh, 1984 for being the, uh, the most banned book, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's funny. Um, I on tyranny was on. Um, on the bestseller list uh, in Am on Amazon uh, on number one for one day, right. and right. then a few weeks later, I checked again, and it was there was like a right wing guy's uh, book yeah. that replaced it, yeah. and I found yeah, that yeah. so interesting. I mean, talking about the divisiveness of the country, but uh, yeah. you know, what's the number one at various points, and what does that say about us? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, a dictator's not going to want your book floating around, that's for sure. Probably not. Um, you do a lot of pencil drawings, lots of yeah. pencil, lots of heavy pencil. Again, that's your hands doing the work. Yeah, pencil is my favorite tool also to write. I always write in my calendar in pencil. Uh, yeah. I love the organicness of it. I like that it's not wasteful, <laughs> too. There's an environmental aspect to it, too. But um it is so organic also when you press on the paper in different ways, you know, you can, you get different lines. Mm -hmm. So it really responds that there's a direct connection between your hand and the paper, but uh, yeah, I, I love it as a tool and I think you can do many different things with it. There's one image where you, you're actually referring to, uh, I think it's the Stanley Milgram uh, yeah. experiments Yale at Yale and uh, it's got this woman's face that's punctured with uh, with uh, holes from a, a needle or electric shocks or whatever it is uh, I couldn't help but think of there's a famous cover of a Paul Rand 
Paul Rand cover where there's actual physical holes in the, in, I think it's in a face or a, a sculpture or something in one of his okay. books. I'll get you the name of that, but yes, uh, any, uh, any particular designer, book designer, uh, illustrator that's influenced your work that you think is the best? Oh God. Uh, I mean, there's so many that I really can't say there uh, there's one best person. I mean, in terms of, as I mentioned earlier, I love uh, German expressionism, partly because of the rawness of the the drawings and, and, and paintings, but also yeah. because of the subject matter, because there's a certain pacifist quality to it, uh, you know, showing the horrors of war. Edvard Munch was an important uh, yeah. illustrator too, wasn't he? Yeah, okay. And then, um, I mean, there are so many storytellers, visual storytellers who I admire, like Chris Ware, the uh, graphic novelist. I mean, it's stylistically very different from what I'm doing. Yeah. But uh, I just love how he uh, dismantles our sense of time and space, uh, which I guess I try to do in very different ways. But to me, he's really a sort of genius. But also, um, I really love also documentary film because my work is also visual uh, nonfiction. Yeah, no, I actually studied documentary films. So I've made a few documentary films and it's something that I could have very much seen myself going into uh, and then abandoned, but I, I feel like I'm trying to return to it now. I mean, a lot of the work I do now is based on interviews, on editing, on thinking about what's the textual level and what's the image level. I mean, everything that filmmakers think about. And so I really admire the work of documentary filmmakers, especially those whose work is poetic and essayistic, like uh, Werner Herzog, the German filmmaker, but also Joshua Oppenheimer, the, who did the act of killing and the look of silence about the genocide in um, Indonesia. Uh, or Yeah, not, I don't know if it's uh, genocide, but the the killings um, and uh, really his work is so visually striking without being sentimental. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't even call it beautiful because the subject matter is so horrifying, but it's very respectful and very, uh, just very striking. Yeah, I mean, there's just an, another documentary film I really uh, admire called Darwin's Nightmare about Lake Victoria in Tanzania and, um, yeah, just people who deal with serious subjects, but in unconventional and poetic ways. That's that's what I'm interested in. That's that's just what I was going to mention is that there's a real seriousness about your work, obviously. There is. Um, I mean, I, I think there's sometimes also a sense of humor. I don't know if it's read as humorous by other people, but... Right. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find an example, but um... well, it's not funny. It's kind of striking and and shocking the way you in one in a number of pl places you've actually re you removed the eyeballs from uh, one of the the faces and put it down on the chest. That was striking, and, and it stopped me. But again, I mean, this paint, this illustration is about ignorance. So not looking, not witnessing. No, exactly. And, yeah. and, and look how it transforms a face when you take the eyes out of, out of the face. Yes. And um, again, we talked about, uh, you know, this kind of more naive, flat, two-dimensional depiction versus a more three-dimensional one. And in this instance, again, if I had done a photorealistic illustration of a face and had removed the eyes, it would have just seemed gory and 
uh, you know, cliched and 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 horror. I don't know. It it wouldn't have. It would have been very voyeuristic, and it would have re removed the viewer from what the message is actually about. But by abstracting the face um, and really hand cutting out the eyes rather than really taking out the eyeballs in a more anatomical looking way, it brings it back to Snyder's message of not looking. Yeah, yeah. You also used a lot of cutouts and paper. We we did refer to that, but that's another technique of yours. Yes, and I also thought a lot about um, not only creating something, but also taking something apart. And again, yes. there was a symbolic meaning to me about that, because I think we have to dissect history. We have to think about how history is written. Uh, sometimes it has to be rewritten. You know, I mean, we see this now, obviously, with the history of colonialism and everything you know decolonizing and so forth and um so i think the act of taking apart and again there's this physical connotation also of cities being destroyed and bombed and yeah um you know i i try to evoke that with cutting out and leaving em empty spaces behind and so forth just yeah just winding down here on page 27 you have this lovely very evocative young girl i couldn't help but think think that that was a self-portrait uh, maybe i'm out to lunch but i'm not a young girl but no uh, you're not but you used to be and you've got short hair like her so uh, i just felt uh, i wonder if that's her so this is actually uh, so this page talks about how uh jewish life disappeared in austria and germany under the nazi regime and that often people were just standing by and not doing anything and it shows a woman that's very translucent looking. Yeah, she's got kind of almost like a blank stare. She's staring yeah. into the distance. Well, it's not clear if she's already disappeared, you know, if she's yes. just a ghost of herself or if she's still there. And that was the idea. Um, and what I did was I researched just photographs of Jewish people who were, you know, persecuted I mean, I think she survived. She she was able to to flee, um, but I I used the photograph just as a base. I mean, it's not a, again, it's not a photographic likeness, but it's not me. Uh, it's uh, it's that woman, this Jewish woman who I read about and found a photo of. I, I used that as an inspiration and then created a drawing with pencil, and then actually erased parts of the drawing again and again, you know, used smudges and um, and then at the very bottom. I drew a series of people, many of them from behind, because to me, that's also something I did a lot in my other book, Belonging, showing people from behind. Again, is this, this questioning this idea of are you looking away on purpose or what are you looking at? Uh, or also looking at something from a distance, looking at history from a distance. And so uh, these are actually copied from photographs I found in my hometown in Germany uh, of people waiting for Adolf Hitler to appear at the main market square in his car. There's scenes like of that in The Triumph of the Will. That, that there's a lot of him going along in cars and big crowds. and yeah. 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 And so there's also a documentary aspect in these particular drawings of the bystanders that I added uh, on the bottom of that page. And again, this was used throughout art history also, the putting a figure from behind somewhere in the foreground who's watching the important event of on the painting uh, as a way of drawing the viewer in and saying oh, yes. look this is you yeah. you are the one who's standing by and doing nothing 
So in a way, it's a representation of the reader. Yes. I must say, though, this this uh, drawing of this young woman is uh, is haunting. She's hauntingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay, just finally, then uh, a couple couple quick questions about the photo montage. I, I I've just been right into uh, John Hartfield. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I'm so impressed with his courage as much as anything, but also his brilliant brilliant uh, use of images and uh, humor and uh, sarcasm and sat whatever you want to call it to make really important points bringing out hypocrisy and whatever influence he's an influence yes definitely uh, i love his work and you know it's very playful and it has a sense of humor i mean dark humor i i i very much appreciate it and also lots of fire. You use fire in this. Uh, but maybe you could just tell me again uh, what, in a nutshell, what, uh, as an illustrator, what do you do? Uh, I mean, you mean me or illustrators in general? I mean both, yeah. I mean, you know, in very basic terms, what illustrators do is shed light. I mean, that's what the word says, shed light on something, ideally. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. also visual propaganda, which does the opposite. So I, I do think uh, there's ingrained in the idea of being an illustrator is this idea of exploring the depths of the human character. And by by drawing what we see, we also in turn, we, we, we create a, a mirror image of who we are as people. And then that image influences who we could become. So I feel, again, there's a fluidity you know, images that are created in our cultures are, are guidelines too for us. I mean, we see it a lot, obviously, with the history of religious imagery, but uh, also contemporary advertising and all of the stuff. But I think that um, we we make images that reflect who we are, but they also in turn shape and change the way we are when they're seen. I mean, when you think about the old Hieronymus Bosch paintings, it's incredible that somebody did this hundreds of years ago and, and it's a comment on our society and on human behavior and um, not much has changed. <laughs> and I always tell that to my students. That's what's so important about being an illustrator is to be aware of that history, but also of our responsibility because we do shape the way that our societies think about the world. In many, well, again, depending on how popular illustration is, you can be just as influential as the writer. Yes. And, uh, you know, before people could read, uh, it was there was only illustration to convey ideas, social ideas, political ideas, propagandistic ideas. Illustration was the one medium that was understood by everybody and only yeah. the monks could read um, and write. And so, I mean, I'm talking about European history, obviously, but um, yeah. This, I think illustration has always had a central role and it has even now a stronger role than many of us are aware. I mean, often when you talk to people about what what you are, what you do from as a, as a profession and you say illustration and they it's often belittled a little bit, I feel like. Uh, and well, especially then, graphic. Yeah, the graphic novels, the comics, it's again, to use our word, they weren't taking they weren't and uh, haven't been taken seriously. But now it seems that the, there's or at least it's taken more seriously. 
Yes, I think, I mean, Mao's changed that in the 90s. Uh, yeah. And I think America yeah. is really at the forefront of recognizing the graphic novel as a serious form of literature. I mean, France is also very much uh, thinking in, in it uh, as of it in that vein. But I think many other countries don't have that consciousness. But even when we, when we think about picture books, I mean, picture books are crucial in shaping the most fundamental ideas in the next generation of people who will yeah. rule this world uh, or, or not rule it. Um, and I think uh, we, we have to really appreciate what children's book illustrators do. Um, you know, learning about empathy can help avoid wars in the future. Thankfully, a lot of children's books do that these days, but um, I think it's not given enough credit. There's a new book coming out about Maurice Sendak, the actual, his, his practice, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was wonderful, obviously. Well, it seems to me that what you do is you think deeply uh, about what you're going to produce. I mean, that, maybe that's just an obvious thing, but it seems to me that what makes you so good is that you think very seriously about what you're going to put on the page. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we're trying to do uh, at the Parsons School of Design where I teach, but um, is to to make our students also understand that illustrators shouldn't be just interpreters, but visual thinkers. And again, I mean, the sense of responsibility plays into this too, because the medium has been abused a lot over, over centuries and um, what and how we communicate is very, very important. So I, I do think we have to think about it um, very deeply. Well, I judge a book uh, by, well, one gauge anyway is, how much I think about it. And I've really thought a lot and it stimulated a lot of thought. You're really great illustrated uh, graphic edition of On Tyranny. So thank you for providing me with, I don't think it was 20 lessons about, about illustration, but it, it was it, certainly informative and, and, and I really appreciate the time you spent with me. Thank you so much for the kind words and the interesting questions and for the time. Very good. So I've been speaking with uh, Nora Krug, and maybe you could just do the extra for me. The what? What are you? Uh, who are you now? Uh, as opposed to at the beginning of this, and uh, where are you going? I've never done a professional extra before, so I'll try my best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've really realized that uh, illustrating nonfiction visual books on politics is my thing and I, yeah. I want to stick with that I mean every book takes me a lot of thought and a lot of time and there's only so much time in one's life so um, I don't want to waste my time and I uh, this is what I'm going to continue doing as I mentioned before I'm doing a book about Russia and Ukraine at the moment that's going to come out next year and I'm also interested in many other subjects, um, including colonialism uh, and contemporary racism. And so I have many subjects that are floating around that I'm embarking uh, on, on uh, research, visual and, and book research. And then we'll see what, what will come out of them. Very good. Well, it's been great to meet you this way. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time again. Thank you, Nigel.